Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, Leilani Albano will be discussing security issues around 5G with the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Director of Strategy, Danny O'Brien. Politicians of all stripes tend to see the world as being made up of countries with borders that are very clearly defined. Well, the internet has been borderless for over 30 years now. And in the later part of the show, we'll talk about AI and the criminal justice system and how that may not be such a great idea with the technology as it stands today. But first, Rick Allen is speaking with Paul Rockman, who is the co-founder of Slam Dance Film Festival, along with Dan Mervish. Let's remind listeners of what the Slam Dance Film Festival is. In 1994, there was about a dozen filmmakers, myself included and Dan included, who were making movies. And all of a sudden, we found out we didn't get into Sundance. And around that time was kind of the time that the Sundance Film Festival was growing. It was several years after Soderbergh had presented Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And it was the year, actually, that the Walt Disney Company bought Miramax and Fox Searchlight started. So all of a sudden, American independent film was being co-opted. And the films at Sundance were starting becoming bigger stars. And the small, true American indies that were at the roots of the Sundance Film Festival when it was called the USA Film Festival were kind of getting left out. So we got together. We got some projectors, we got our films, and we went up to Park City, and we just put on our own festival. And this was at the um, same time that Sundance Festival was going on. Yeah, we wanted attention. And um, it really worked. Was the first year was called Anarchy in Utah, the Slamdance International Film Festival. We did screenings, and we got hotel, ballrooms, a little office space for the 16-millimeter films. It was a tiny room, but it was in the hallway that led up to one of Sundance's main screening rooms. So we kind of right there in the center of everything. And they didn't really like us that much. <laughs> I can um, imagine. But the press picked up on us. Variety, Hollywood Reporter, LA Times, all picked up on this because it was a story. And they fell in love with us. So that press that we got really catapulted us and gave us the energy to keep doing it. And uh, we came back the following year, got rid of our selfishness, and we started <laughs> doing the same thing for other filmmakers. And last year, we celebrated our 25th year. The Slam Dance is really a discovery festival. It's about first-time filmmakers, mainly, in the competition. And over the years, we had a lot of great first films from some pretty noted filmmakers. Christopher Nolan's first film, The Following, was at Slamdance, his next film. The Russo brothers came to Slamdance the year that Steven Soderbergh came, and he ended up helping them, and they ended up last year doing Marvel Avengers movies. Right. Lynn Shelton, Drake Dormus. I mean, pretty good list of 30, 40 outstanding alumni who've all gone on to Sundance and Cannes and the Oscars. And this year, we're really celebrating a very special alum. The very first time Bong Joon-ho, Parasite, came to America was for Slamdance. Right, that's great. Um, he was always grateful for that. We insisted that the sales agent and distributor send him, or we wouldn't take the film. And he's the film of the year, globally. 
Parasite is like a global phenomenon, and it's got six nominations at the Academy Awards, and we're rooting for him. He's like the most talented and nicest guy in the world. What a great story. Well, let's turn to uh, what's on tap this year. It's always kind of a discovery thing, so we'll see what really, really stands out with audiences. And I'm going to start with the section called the Breakout Section, which is for our filmmakers beyond their first film. They're still making very independent, visionary, low-budget films, but they're kind of on their second or third film. And one of the films in that section is our opening night film. It's called A Film About a Father Who. This is a documentary that uh, Lynn Sachs made about her father, and it took 26 years to make. It took 26 years because she was constantly shooting him. She's a documentarian, a little bit of an experimental documentarian. She just kept on shooting her dad, and it turns out she finds out all these dark family secrets, complications within the family. The film is fascinating. It's a film that keeps unraveling beyond your expectations. So that's our opening night. And it, the best way I can describe it, it's a shockingly beautiful film. So intimate and so difficult to make. And I have a feeling this film is going to kind of pop. In the breakout section, we also have a great Mexican filmmaker. This is a filmmaker who really fits the canon of Iñárritu, Cuarón. He's kind of following that line. His name is Andres Clarion, and he made a film called Territorio, which the English translation is Close Quarters. And it's this really intense, almost sick, uh, kind of a three-way family relationship about a couple trying to have a baby. They can't afford artificial insemination. Somebody else comes into the picture, and it destroys everything. It's a very, very intense film. Really well done. Difficult subject matter. The yeah. acting is phenomenal. And I just think this is the next great Mexican filmmaker to take over world cinema. We'll see. So going on to our competition. So our competition is first-time filmmakers. So, you know, the way Slamdance programs is different than almost all all festivals. We just get films. We don't track movies. We don't, like, look at labs, you know, the Sundance Labs, the uh, LA Independent Labs. We're not, we're just telling people we want to find truly independent filmmakers who might be in places like Oklahoma or Kansas, you know. We really want to give those people a shot. We watch every single film and we often find these wonderful films that nobody knows about. Uncut um, gems, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. I mean, last year we had a film like that from Oklahoma City called The Vast of Night. And just to give a quick example, these were guys from Oklahoma City. They shot a film in Texas, and it's kind of a sci-fi period piece. It's like, um, you know, flying saucers in the 50s. Mm. And uh, they came to Slamdance without a sales agent, without a publicist. They just didn't know who to trust. They, they got into Slamdance and all these Hollywood types were calling them in Oklahoma City. And they're like, who the hell are these people? How do we know we can trust them? So they came with nothing. They just came with them and their film. And the film is phenomenal. And they, I think they left Park City with the best deal in the business. They ended up with a super agent from WME, uh, namely uh, Quentin Carantino and Bong Joon-ho's agent. Wow. Who fell in love with the movie and they got a, like a multi-picture deal at Amazon. And cool. the film's going to come out in March. 
That's kind of the kind of story, again, this, his name is Andrew Patterson. This guy will fit into that list of great alumni we have. And by the way, we play all these films year-round at the Arclight in Hollywood. Right. So we have a screening series where the Cinerama Dome is, and every month, sometimes twice a month, usually on a Tuesday or Wednesday, there is a Slamnan Cinema Club. Where we give away about 200 free tickets. So if you sign up to our newsletter, you can get those emails to get free tickets to the Slamnet Cinema Club. And we play almost all the films that are at the festival and the shorts and the anarchy films. And most often the filmmakers come in and do a Q&A. So that, that's been a great, great thing for us to be able to finally we found a home generous enough to give us this beautiful 80-foot screen in Hollywood to show these movies. That is great. Paul Rockman, thank you very much for being on Digital Village, and please give people the uh, web address. Yes, slamdance.com. Tickets are on sale. The whole program, the schedule, the description of the films, everything is there right on the home page. You can't you can't get lost. So just go to slamdance.com and check it out. And if you're up in Park City, come and say hello. That was Paul Rockman talking about the Slamdance Film Festival, which is running January 24th to 30th in Park City, Utah. Up next, Leilani Albano will be talking to Danny O'Brien of the EFF, whose work focuses on the intersection between technology and civil liberties. And they'll discuss security concerns around 5G, particularly around Chinese tech giant Huawei and U.S. concerns that they're undermining national security. Listen to this. Hi, I'm Leilani Albano, reporting for Digital Village Radio. With us is Danny O'Brien, Director of Strategy for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mainstream media has been making a big deal about how Huawei is a leader in 5G development. Why is that so crucial here at this point in terms of discussions about cybersecurity? You know, I think it's less about cybersecurity and more about the sort of balance between major tech companies. When you have a new generation of mobile phone or any kind of major system, there's always a little barrage between companies who seek to get patents or seek to get mastery of a particular crucial component. So there's definitely a, a battle going on to see who will be the dominant players in the 5G market. Now, the truth is, is that groups like us, who don't have a financial interest in who wins, or even a geopolitical interest in who wins, what we're primarily concerned about is the security of these systems. That actually has less to do with who makes them and more to do with the standards that they sign off on. So everybody has to build something to a certain standard. Huawei might be the people who end up building that on a majority or a minority of the world's telephone systems. But the truth is, is that governments and companies cut corners on the security of 5G. So if the United States is concerned that Huawei is going to be enabling surveillance on these systems, the, the underlying standards are too weak, rather than Huawei is the sole manufacturer who might end up exploiting those weaknesses. Is there concern with surveillance? Surveillance is a recurring and deeply worrying problem in the whole of the digital infrastructure. 
right now. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is is that we tend not to build these systems to be truly invulnerable to being spied upon. And part of the reason is doing that is actually quite hard. The other reason is the intelligence services of every country, including the United States, have made it clear that they would prefer these systems to be deliberately weakened so that they can have an opportunity to spy on who they might want. So there's a fundamentally low level of security and privacy on these systems. And it really, surprisingly, comes down to like a few individuals and groups like ours to build some security on top of those fundamentally weak systems. The trouble is pointing fingers doesn't really solve the problem. And it's to me, it's very unlikely that Huawei is a particular offender in a space where Almost every company is cutting corners, which means their software and hardware is insecure. And every government, including Western governments, are stepping up to solve that problem. These security allegations, for the most part, are are, are unfounded in a sense that Huawei isn't any worse than other tech companies. I am sure that there are stories kicking around the foreign policymakers of the United States that talk about spies being found. In, in Huawei of suspicious behavior by Huawei employees and so forth. Trouble is, is that actual insecurities of these systems are universal. The systematic problem with shoring up the security of our systems and the fact that, that one country has spotted the spies of another and are worried about what they're doing doesn't point to one system actually being more secure or less secure. If, for instance, the United States put the insecurities into U.S. hardware, then we would almost inevitably see and have seen historically actors from the rest of the world exploiting those vulnerabilities. And the fact that it was the U.S. that might have put them there in the first place is neither here nor there. And it's the same with Huawei. If Huawei is building vulnerabilities to the Chinese government, it's not just going to be the Chinese government that will exploit this. And it's not just the target of the Chinese government who are going to suffer from it. I think that this is a pattern that you see sort of recurring in the digital environment. Politicians of all stripes, when they are dealing with something like this, tend to see the world as being made up of countries with borders that are very clearly defined. Well, the internet has been borderless for over 30 years now, and most of the technology that we use on it has been freely shared. The software has been freely shared. It is built by the contributions of hundreds of thousands of people all around the world, and those borders have been weakening for decades. What is a more sound approach to the surveillance issue? There hasn't been much talk about solutions. Well, I think we need to fix the terms of the debate. It's sort of like if the U.S. was accusing Chinese medical company of spreading disease, but at the same time, it's reserving the right to say that it 
medical companies should have the right to spread disease as well under the basis of national security. We have an internet health emergency here and everybody is arguing about who's spreading the, the sickness and nobody's stepping up to fix and inoculate the system as a whole. And so what is the better solution here? Should we be stealth in terms of solving these problems or should we be moving towards cyber transparency? Stealth has never fixed any of these security problems. All it leads to is people covering up terrible vulnerabilities. And this blame game and this quid pro quo Cold War attitude between the Chinese government and the U.S. government about cybersecurity isn't fixing anything. Thanks so much for joining the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. That was Electronic Frontier Foundation Director of Strategy, Danny O'Brien. And this is Leilani Albano reporting for Digital Village Radio. Thanks, Leilani, for that report. It will be interesting to watch how 5G unfolds. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by AI expert Peter Eckersley to discuss AI in the criminal justice system and some concerns with California's SB10. Here's Peter. You might be surprised that last year, the state of California passed a piece of legislation called SB10 that mandated that every county in the state go out and purchase this AI software called risk assessment tools to use to decide whether every single criminal defendant in the state would be detained or released while they were waiting for their trial. So this is AI for deciding who is in jail and who's released in use across the entire state of California. How does that work? Yeah, so the funny thing is, in some ways, these AI systems are very simple. Perhaps even so simple that they look a little like fancy actuarial tables. It's the kind of AI that existed before we had computers. But the way it works is some correctional officer will assess a bunch of questions about you. They'll say, you know, what's your past arrest history? How old are you? Depending on the particular piece of software, maybe they'll ask a battery of of sort of psychology and life questions. Or it may be very simple, just a few basic demographic questions. And then the computer will spit out a probability saying this person is 7 out of 10 likely to be a risk. And it's very fuzzy about what the risks are. Maybe it's a risk failure to show up for a court date, or maybe it's a risk of being re-arrested if you'll be released while waiting for your trial. Recently in the United States, over the last 10 years, there's been a big wave of deployment of this kind of software. So the thing that California is potentially mandating here, and the the situation with that law is very complicated, so I don't want to say that it's necessarily going into force, but the thing that California is potentially mandating is the culmination of a much wider push to deploy this sort of software with good intentions, with intentions that were part of an agenda of reforming the US criminal justice system, which if you're a data scientist or an AI expert like me, you you look at the US criminal justice system and say, wait a minute, why is this system imprisoning four to five times more people than it sort of seems like it should be compared to historical baselines or compared to other countries or compared to the crime rate? There are far too many people in prison in the United States. And so people are trying to change that by moving from a punitive basis for incarceration to one that's more evidence-based. And that's, in principle, a good idea. Move from human decision-makers or laws that require long sentences to some more rational basis sounds great. The problem is, it turns out the AI systems that they're using are really janky and unreliable and not at all the kind of thing you'd want to have making prison or not prison decisions. Right, especially when we see the number of African-American men who are incarcerated. 
Are there concerns that these systems are also racially biased? This is a great question. The particular pieces of software, they vary in how they collect information about race, whether they do it all and how they use it. But there are many really troubling things that we've learned. A couple of years ago, an investigative journalist named Julia Anglin and her colleagues at ProPublica at the time used Freedom of Information Act requests in Florida to find out how this software was functioning in practice. And what they saw was that there was a tremendous mathematical disparate impact, uh, which is different to a legal disparate impact, but a mathematical disparate impact where your odds of being labeled as high risk, given that you weren't going to be reoffend or be rearrested, were almost twice as high if you're African-American than if you are white. And that research has sparked a huge debate, a huge flourishing of technical literature on what it means for an algorithm to be fair or to be biased and how you define those concepts. It turns out it's very complicated. And the the definition that Julia Anglin and her, her colleagues used is only one of several possible measures for this problem. And you can't satisfy all of them at once necessarily. But this disparate impact did look really troubling and inappropriate for these tools. And it actually points to a very unintuitive conclusion, which is that you really shouldn't have the software be blind to race. What you want to do is collect information about race and ensure that you're treating people fairly. You want to just ensure that if someone's not going to reoffend if they've been arrested for something, but actually that arrest was unjust in the first place, or it was a, a reasonable arrest, but that person figures out their life and gets their act together, that you treat them fairly, uh, regardless of other things about their life. What types of crimes are these used for? Well, they would be used for all crimes in the state of California, though in the case of a severe crime like murder, there would be other processes that would kick in and prevent people from being released, probably as a result of a a low-risk score. The question about marijuana, it turns out to be very interesting and very troubling. So... If you look at the way these AI systems are built, so they're they're made from training data, they're machine learning systems. And so what they do is, what the people making the the software do is they they collect a data set about past events, you know, the characteristics of past arrestees, and then what happened when they were released, if they were released. And they try to, and of course, unless you totally randomize that, you don't have really clean data. But they get this data set and then use it to train a predictive model based on, on that past data. We've been involved in a collaboration with some researchers at Stanford to try to find out, well, what data have all of the tools been based on? And the answers are really troubling. It seems like the data is almost always 10 to 20 years older, if not older. And as AI researchers, we say, what? No, you have to always have fresh data and retrain your models all the time. Yeah, and your model is only as good as your data. Yeah, so there are a couple of huge problems with that. One is that crime has fallen enormously in the United States. There was a great crime wave, which was probably one of the causes for that massive incarceration in the US, but it ended basically in the mid-90s. And since these data sets were collected 10 or 20 years ago, crime has fallen maybe by 30%. And it's particularly fallen amongst juvenile demographics. So you expect a model that's trained on 10 to 20-year-old data to be unfair to everyone, particularly unfair to to juvenile defendants. But then the most troubling thing is the data sets predate decriminalization of marijuana. And so these data sets, which are data about arrests, they contain marijuana arrest information, and they predict based on factors like age and past arrest history, characteristics of of one's community in some cases, how likely it is that you will be arrested, say, in in a three-month period or a one-year period after you're arrested. And the answer is, well, if you used old data that included marijuana arrests, 
in communities where marijuana was disparately enforced to an enormous degree against African-Americans, you can pretty much guarantee that you're making a prediction now that marijuana has been decriminalized, that people will be arrested and what you're doing is sort of keeping the ghost of marijuana enforcement alive. SB 10, which is currently not in effect, is the bill that mandates the use of these risk assessment tools. Can you talk a little bit about SB 10? So the story of the SB 10 legislation is really complicated. It initially started as an initiative proposed by a number of criminal justice reform organizations, and its aim was to abolish money bail in the state of California, a reform that that many uh, progressive activists had supported. It was then amended at the last minute to still abolish money bail, but to require the use of these risk assessment tools and and to be strict on defendants in in a number of other ways. And it passed very quickly after those amendments were proposed by the state's judiciary. And that, I think, put reform coalitions in a, in a bind. They wanted the goal of abolishing money bail, but were really uncomfortable about a number of these other things. So there was a lot of disagreement amongst reformers about the final legislation. But it's a complicated situation where one could potentially have been uncomfortable with SB 10 and then also be uncomfortable with repealing it, particularly because if that repeal goes through as a side effect of the constitutional effects, it would prevent further legislation from sort of fixing up SB 10. And the matter is also further complicated by litigation that can change the effect of SB 10, etc. And the fact that the Judicial Council of California may proceed, in fact, is proceeding with deployment and sort of implementation of SB 10 in practice even though the law hasn't gone into full. So in our work at the Partnership on AI, we convened the AI community and the AI ethics community, so both people at the major technology companies, academic research groups, civil society, to talk about these risk assessment tools. And what we learned was very interesting. There wasn't really agreement or consensus on whether it could ever be conceivably a good idea to use AI software for this sort of purpose. What we noticed was that disagreement was largely about points of comparison. If you were comparing an AI system in this limited context to a human being functioning in the same context, you could argue the AI system could do better. But other voices said, that's the wrong comparison. We should compare the reform of purchasing and installing all this software to other reforms that would improve the human setting of how courts function and how the the criminal justice system functions. And there are lots of other reforms that could lead to much better outcomes, safer communities, and also less unnecessary and excessive and harmful incarceration. Different groups had those perspectives. But what we found was there was essentially consensus in the AI community that the current tools were being prematurely deployed and that they were not fit for the purpose that they were being used for. And we articulated a set of 10 requirements, some of which would be not met by any of the present software that you really ought to meet and that the state of California or the Judicial Council or other legislators around the country should consider uh, creating standards around. That's great. Has the report been heard? What about California? Well, we've heard from governments in other places around the the country, in Philadelphia, for instance, that that our report has been really helpful in steering their policies away from large deployments of these risk assessment tools. In California, the jury's out. We'll see what they do. That was Peter Eckersley on California's push to bring AI into the criminal justice system and how that might be a bit premature. And the complications around California's SB 10, which will be a ballot measure for Californians on Election Day this November. We've covered the awesome Slam Dance Festival with Paul Rockman and how we really need standards for building security into 5G networks with Danny O'Brien of the EFF. 
That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and clicking the audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Leilani Albano and Peter Eckersley and Evo Jansen for all our music. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll we'll see see you online. online.